Even as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so the Word of the Gospel comes among us this day. Our Gospel lesson is from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Listen carefully to God's Word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And there ends our reading. This is the Gospel of Christ. Praise be to Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning. Our lesson of the day comes from the book of Malachi, starting in chapter 3, verse 16. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have inspired Your Word. You carried along the prophets and men of old by Your Spirit, and You have preserved this Word for us today. And You have promised to bless the preaching of Your Word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that You would speak to us. Give us faith to believe Your promises. Help us to fear You and tremble at Your threats that we would indeed be a people ready for the coming of the Lord, that we would not fear Your judgment, but would welcome and anticipate Your judgment when You come to judge the earth with righteousness. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This is the the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we are right on the cusp of entering the Christmas season. And the fourth Sunday of Advent gives us the perfect opportunity to study this section here at the end of the book of Malachi. In the context of the whole church calendar, the season of Advent rehearses the Old Covenant expectation and anticipation of God's promised Messiah through the prophets, through the Torah, through all the promises that God made in the Old Covenant to send the Messiah, to send a Savior, to come Himself and visit His people and redeem them. We see through the season of Advent, we rehearse that anticipation, that expectation. Although Malachi... Malachi was not actually originally the last book of the canon. In the Hebrew canon, uh, Chronicles comes at the end, just like in the Greek Old Testament. It was in Jerome's Latin uh, translation of the Old Testament that he put Malachi uh, in the twelve, the book of the twelve minor prophets at the end of the canon. But Malachi... It fits. Uh, Malachi, you could make uh, the argument either way because Malachi was chronologically, Malachi was the last prophet sent by God before approximately 400 years of silence that was broken by John the Baptist and the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God. So for chronological reasons alone, Malachi is... Uh, a natural fit here at the end of our Old Testament. As we'll see, though, there's advantages to preserving uh, the ancient uh, order of the, of the books of the Old Testament that the, that the Hebrews uh, preserve for us. However, uh, we've also seen in previous sermons that Malachi also provides a fitting transition into the New Covenant Scriptures. Because the book of Malachi sets us up to understand the world of Jesus and the life of Israel when John the Baptist and Jesus come on to the scene. Malachi also, as we've seen and we'll see again today, 
gives us some of the clearest and most explicit prophecies about the coming, the incarnation of Christ, about the coming of the Lord, and about His forerunner uh, who would come to prepare His way. But don't let the historical significance of Malachi for the first coming of Christ fool you into thinking that Malachi doesn't have anything to say to us today. Don't be fooled into thinking that Malachi uh, is outdated or irrelevant for our own time and situation. In fact, the opposite is true. The Old Covenant prophecies about the Messiah's first coming have much to teach us who await His coming again. The prophecies about the Lord's coming like we find in Malachi are indispensable not only so that we have a proper understanding of what the coming of Jesus means and how to understand uh, the New Testament, but they also reveal to us profound insights into God's character as we await the return of Christ. Now this this passage, uh, I'm going to take the end of chapter 3 and come back to, uh, we skipped a section uh, on tithing. I'll come back to that later. Don't worry. I know so many of you are disappointed. Um, But don't worry. I'll come back to that section uh, in another sermon. Uh, But I'm going to take the end of chapter 3. I'm going to divide this passage into three parts. um, And we'll look... We'll look at um, each of these uh, these three sections uh, as we go. When we start at the end of chapter three in verses sixteen to eighteen, notice notice the theme uh, that that Malachi is developing here. Notice some of these key terms and the language that he uses in transitioning into this section on the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord in judgment. The fear of the Lord is mentioned uh, multiple times throughout the book of Malachi. The problem that Malachi charges the priests and the people of Israel with who have returned from exile is that they don't fear the Lord. And he says here that there were some who heard the prophecies of Malachi, who heard the warnings uh, of Malachi that the Lord brought, and they feared the Lord. They repented. They spoke with one another. And they, the Lord heard them and made a book of remembrance, wrote their names in the book of remembrance, all those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. And what does, what does the Lord say about these who have feared the Lord? They shall be Mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up My treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This is all picking up on the themes of Israel as God's son and Yahweh as their father. Of course, this, these ideas uh, originated primarily in the book of Exodus with the deliverance from Egypt. The word, the phrase, the tr- that they shall be my treasured possession, that they shall be mine, This is straight out of the book of Exodus where Israel is called God's son 
And then at Exodus 19, when God brings His, His Son, His people, to Mount Sinai, He calls them His treasured possession. He belongs to them and they belong to Him. This echoes the themes from the very first section of Malachi where God says, the Lord says, I have loved you. I have loved Jacob and Esau have I hated. God's love is His covenant loyalty, His covenant election of the people of Israel and separating them out from the rest of the peoples of the world to be His own special possession. And here at the end of Malachi, He returns to those themes where He is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. And He's going to deliver His people in a new exodus. Think of also uh, the phrase that God paid attention and heard them. This is right out again of the book of Exodus. At the end of chapter 2, before the, right before the Lord sends Moses to deliver the people, it says that the people cried out to the Lord and their cries went up to the Lord and the Lord heard their cries and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then He commissioned Moses to be their deliverer. The Lord here pays attention to those who fear Him. He hears them and He promises to deliver them, to separate them and show that He is indeed their Lord and they are indeed His people. We also see in the book of Exodus that even in the plagues, God distinguished between the righteous and the wicked. God distinguished between those who were His own people and those who were not His own people. Plagues would fall on the Egyptians and the people of Israel would be spared from those plagues. God, in His judgment, distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. And of course, the tenth plague was the plague, the death of the firstborn son. So Israel is God's son who was spared from that judgment. And they belong to God. But the problem throughout the book of Malachi is that Israel has become a rebellious son that doesn't fear the Lord. A son who doesn't fear their father. And so God is warning them, promising them to come in judgment and to be, for them to be prepared for that judgment. The righteous, those who will be spared from judgment, are simply those who fear God. Those who serve God. The wicked, obviously, are those who do not fear God. Those who do not serve God. Now here's where the one, one way that the Hebrew order of the books of the, the Old Testament uh, has a lot of, of richness and depth. Because if you're reading your Hebrew Bible, as so many of you do for your daily devotionals, and you flip to the very next page after the book of Malachi, the next page is Psalm 1. The book of Psalms comes right after the book of Malachi in the Hebrew canon. And what is the, what is the theme of Psalm 1? The theme of Psalm 1 is the difference between 
the man, the righteous man who fears the Lord and how he is blessed, and the wicked who does not fear the Lord and will be judged. Think about all the themes, all the connections between the end of Malachi and Psalm 1. Some ways you could say that Psalm 1 is sort of a commentary on the end of the book of Malachi. There is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The last word of the book of Malachi is the word curse or ban or uh, it's the idea of holy warfare where God would pronounce an entire city or, or people uh, as under a decree of destruction. What's the very first word of Psalm 1? Blessed. You have this, this transition from cursing, this warning of cursing, to this psalm that uh, talks about the man who is blessed. Both the end of Malachi and Psalm 1 focus on the theme of judgment. The, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. So that's Psalm 1. You have in both Psalm 1 and the end of the book of Malachi emphasis on God's judgment being uh, burning up stubble in Malachi or the Spirit, the wind of the Spirit blowing away the chaff in Psalm 1. They both emphasize the need to meditate on the Torah, the instruction of God. And both of them describe the blessing of the righteous as fruitfulness and being well-fed. That's, that's the imagery in Malachi, being calves, young calves that go out leaping from the stalls. These are well-fed calves that are being let loose into the pastures. Psalm 1, of course, describes the righteous man as a fruitful tree who bears much fruit. There's more that could be said there, but that's, a, that's an important um, connection, I think, that illuminates uh, what Malachi is, is getting at. The, the point, one of the points here in Malachi throughout the book that we've seen is that it's not always possible to judge by appearances or circumstances and know who is blessed by God and who is not. Throughout life, the righteous often suffer as much or more, it seems, than the wicked. The Psalms are filled with these kinds of, of cries for God uh, to vindicate His people. And why do the wicked prosper? Why are God's people trampled down and afflicted? Our brothers and sisters throughout the world, many of them are persecuted and undergoing severe hardship. Uh, for their faith or just live very difficult lives. Uh, and it often is not apparent to the eye who is righteous and who is wicked. Who are the people of God and who are the enemies of God. And so Malachi promises that God is coming and He is going to clear up any confusion on the matter. He is going to make it clear who are His people and who are not His people. That is the essence of judgment. Anytime God brings judgment, He is separating, He is evaluating, and He is vindicating His people, and He is bringing punishment on the wicked. And so, Malachi chapter 4 
the end here focuses on that coming judgment and speaks of the judgment in terms of the day of the Lord. That, that phrase, the day or the day of the Lord or the day of His coming occurs six times here uh, in the end of the book of Malachi. And this is a, a major theme among the prophets. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Amos, Joel, Ezekiel, many of the prophets speak of the coming day of the Lord. But Malachi is the only prophet after the exile to use that terminology. All the prophets before the exile speak of God's judgment on Israel as the day of the Lord, or God's judgment on Judah, or God's judgment on Egypt, or on the Babylonians, or on Edom. Malachi is the only prophet after the exile to speak in terms of the day of the Lord. And so it's, it's important to understand what the day of the Lord is, what Malachi has in mind. When we think of judgment, we think of doomsday. We think of some, you know, major Armageddon, nuclear apocalypse. We think of uh, horrible things, right? When we think of God, God's judgment, the day of the Lord. And there's good reason to, I mean, the Old Testament is filled with descriptions that are very dark. Um, when God comes and punish, punishes the wicked, punishes His rebellious people, but judgment is broader than just punishment. God's judgment is, is evaluation. It's inspection. And it involves separation. It involves punishment for the wicked. It involves purification for God's people. Many of you uh, students, whether you're in high school or grad school, many of you have taken final exams. Maybe you've endured graduate uh, comprehensive exams or you've defended a dissertation recently. Final exams are kind of like judgment day, right? Dun, dun, dun. Are final exams a good thing or a bad thing? Well... What do exams of any kind, what do they do? They evaluate. They inspect. They, they let your professor or your teacher know what you've been doing for the past four months or for the past four years, right? It's a way to be, uh, to show what you've been up to, to prove yourself, right? To see how much you've learned and, and studied and, main, and uh, you know, uh, maintained and attained now do you have to uh, do you have to fear final exams the only people who have to fear final exams are the people who haven't feared final exams right if you feared final exams beforehand you don't have to fear them when exam time comes right those who needs to fear final exams those who blew them off, those who didn't fear final exams need to fear final exams when they come, right? The, there's a, in any kind of judgment, in any kind of evaluation, there is a double effect. There is reward for those who have shown themselves faithful and prepared themselves, and there is punishment for those 
who haven't. Both of those are involved in any kind of judgment. And the same, we can see that analogy applied to God's judgment. God promises that those who don't fear judgment will need to fear God's judgment. Those who don't fear Him will fear God's judgment. But those, on the other hand, those who who fear God, those who are prepared, who heed His warnings, don't need to fear. That's why uh, we can speak of God coming in judgment with hope and expectation. We can sing joy to the world because He comes to judge the earth. For the righteous, for God's people, that's a good thing. Because so oftentimes in judgment, God comes to vindicate His people. God comes to punish those who are persecuting God's people. God comes to, to defend His people, to, uh, to punish the persecutors and oppressors, the wicked. That's a good thing. And we can sing joy to the world because Jesus is the just judge who comes to set things right and to vindicate His faithful people. But God's just because we are God's people doesn't exempt us from judgment. We will be inspected. We will be evaluated. The works, the, the things that we have done with the gifts that God has given us will be evaluated and inspected and rewarded. Those who fear God will be spared from the punishment of His judgment, but our works will be evaluated. And this is not just an Old Testament idea. Paul talks about this. And others, many places in the New Testament, talk about the evaluation and the judgment of our works. Well, in chapter... So with those ideas in mind, look at verses 1... The first couple verses of chapter 4. Malachi describes God's coming judgment as a burning oven that will consume the wicked. This harkens back to the covenant with Abraham where God appears in the form of a burning oven to make this covenant with Abraham. God comes as fire. God's fire is often a refining fire, a fire of judgment. And in the, and in this case, God's fiery presence will come to set them ablaze, the wicked. The wicked will be like stubble. They're the leftovers from the harvest, from the wheat. The wheat is, is harvested and threshed. The grain is separated and brought into the barn. And the stubble is burned up. And it, got, it says that God's presence, God's fiery judgment will come and set the wicked ablaze like stubble and leave them neither root nor branch. God's people are purified and preserved through judgment, but the wicked are totally consumed. But for those who fear God, in in verse 2, the Lord promises, but for you who fear my name. Now, the whole book of Malachi has been addressed to the wicked, to the rebellious people, to the priests who are leading the people astray, to the people who are committing these grave sins against the Lord. But here at the end, this is a section 
the section on judgment would not be the section we would expect to be the section that comforts us, brings us comfort, but this is directed toward those who fear, fear God as a message of comfort. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. And so for those who fear God, the coming day of judgment will be like the rising sun. What Again, there is a double effect. The fire that consumes the stubble will be the, the heat that bakes the wheat into bread. This is the message of John the Baptist. God is coming and He will gather the wheat into His barns and the, the wicked He will consume with fire. The light of God, when the light of God comes, it exposes everything. Everything is hidden. You can run, but you can't hide when the piercing light of God's glory shines on everything and illuminates the hidden deeds of the wicked. But at the same time, the Son of Righteousness ushers in a new day of blessing for the faithful. And so this idea of the Son of Righteousness coming is important in the theme of judgment, but it is also highly significant for the, the coming transition of covenantal redemption history. The Son of Righteousness will rise. What is this what does this mean? Uh, I actually preached an entire sermon on the theme of light and darkness and, and focused on this verse almost exactly a year ago. It was last Christmas. So I'm not going to rehash uh, all of that. You can find that sermon on the website. But the, the Bible has this built-in eschatology, even from the very beginning of Genesis. God creates light in the midst of total darkness. And so the book of Genesis begins with darkness, and then God brings light into that darkness, and the book of Revelation ends with the, the, whole, the whole world is light. Everything is light. There is no more darkness, no more night. And the whole Bible is telling this story of this trajectory from God bringing the whole world from utter darkness to total and complete light by the glory of His presence. And in the biblical concept, the biblical worldview, the sunrise doesn't happen at the beginning of the day. The sunrise happens in the middle of the day, right? There was evening and there was morning the first day. The day starts when the sun goes down. So when does sunrise happen? In the middle of that day. And here in the middle of Redemption history, the transition from darkness to light, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, happens in the advent of Christ. Smack dab in the middle of redemption history. Uh, if you think about it, the whole Old Covenant took place in the dark. Everything was types and shadows. The whole festival, all the, all the uh, calendars of Israel were according to the moon. 
the lampstand, the light of God's presence. Everything was hidden behind veils and curtains. Why does Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Because he is representative of Israel, which was in the dark until the coming of Christ when God's glory burst out from behind the veils and the curtains of the tabernacle and the light of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ brought to light the realities that the Old Covenant had only foreshadowed and prefigured. So Jesus is spoken of in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, as the light of God, the Son of Righteousness, the day spring from on high who has brought an end to the darkness, brought an end to the night, and has inaugurated a new day, a new covenant uh, for God's for God's people. And that's exactly what Malachi is foreshadowing, is prophesying about here. The idea of healing in the wings of the sun is, is an interesting one. I uh, probably don't have a lot of time to go into that. It could be strictly a metaphor, metaphorical language to say that the, the rays of the sun are like its wings. And when the sun comes up, it covers everything. It brings new life to the people of God. It brings uh, warmth and life and fruitfulness to the land, to, to the people. So the wings could be descriptive of the rays of the sun and how it covers the whole earth. But there's also an interesting connection here. The word wing is also the word in Hebrew that describes the corners of the garment, the, the edges of a garment. Uh, most in the old, in the Torah, God's people were commanded to put tassels made of blue on the wings, the edges of their garments to remind them of God's holiness and to remind them to obey God's commandments. And so if you see a Jew today, a good Orthodox Jew will have tassels hanging out of his coat sleeves uh, in accordance with the commands of Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Law of Moses. But those tassels were put on the wings of the garment. And interestingly, in the Gospels, in four different places in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, this is not just an isolated thing. Each of the Gospel writers says that people came and they touched the wings, the edges, the borders of Jesus' garments and were healed. And there is a long tradition of interpreting uh, those healing miracles by touching the wings of Jesus' garment, the tassels, the fringes of His garment, as direct fulfillment uh, of Malachi's prophecy that Jesus is the Son of Righteousness and He brings healing in His wings. Uh, He And of course, the healing miracles are symbolic, are representative of the healing that He brings to all of mankind. The restoration uh, of the world and the reversal of the curse that He would accomplish in His death and resurrection. It also says that when God comes to judge His people, to judge the world, 
that the righteous, those who fear God, will go out leaping like calves from the stall. The word here, the old uh, translation here is gambling. Not, not gambling like the lottery, but not blackjack or poker. Gambling with an O. Gambling. It's, it describes calves skipping or leaping or frolicking. Okay, I'll confess, I went on YouTube and you can find videos of cows jumping for joy. Uh, there are, it's true, don't do it now, don't do it now, but go home and look up cows jumping for joy. And there are farmers, uh, a couple farmers in England who, uh, they keep their cows, uh, inside in stalls all winter long. And then when the grass has regrown and everything's thawed out, they open the gate and they turn the cows loose and they jump. Baby cows will do this, but full-grown cows will, instead of eating the grass, they'll jump. They'll just run around jumping. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, this is, this is the image here, uh, that, uh, a cow that's born in the winter has to be cooped up in a stall all winter long until the spring comes. And that would be the first time it ever got to go out. Uh, and eat real grass uh, in the field. And, and so I think the, uh, the image here may go along with this new covenant transition that there is a new season. Uh, C.S. Lewis in the, Chronic, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe talks about the thaw, the end of winter, and the beginning of spring. It was always winter, but never Christmas until Aslan came and thawed everything out and everything in Narnia sprang to life. So here in the calves from the stall, you may have this imagery of, of young calves being finally released into uh, the world, the, the fruitful world, after being cooped up in the stall uh, all winter long. Um, verse 3 uh, might make us a little bit uncomfortable. It might surprise us. For, for God to say to the righteous, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. But this, this is not new. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Because like I said uh, a minute ago, not only are God's people vindicated and blessed when God comes in judgment, but the righteous, in many cases, also participate in God's judgment and punishment and overthrow of the wicked. How did God, what was, how did God judge Egypt? Well, one of the ways He judged the Egyptians was as the people were leaving, they took all the valuables. The Egyptians were paying the Israelites to leave. And they, it, the Bible says they plundered the Egyptians. And they, that's what they used to build the tabernacle. Uh, how did, uh, what happened when the people worshiped the golden calf? That's a central story to the book of Malachi. Some of the Levites were involved in bringing God's judgment by killing those who had worshiped the golden calf. How did God judge the people of Canaan and bless Israel? Well, when they entered the promised land, God used the Israelites to bring uh, judgment on the wicked and idolatrous people of the land. 
Phineas also, who is a central character in the book of Malachi, was involved in bringing God's judgment on the adulterous Israelite. So this idea of God's people participating in judgment on the wicked is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. Uh, even, in the New, even in the New Testament, the New Covenant, God brings about judgment on the wicked through the civil magistrate who bears the sword, but also especially through the church and through her spiritual warfare, not against flesh and blood, the pawns, uh, but against the principalities and powers. Paul says in Romans 16 that God is trampling Satan under our feet. People in the Old Covenant never got a chance to trample Satan under their feet, but we do. And in Revelation 19, when the Lord goes forth conquering and to conquer, who is the army that He leads? It's the saints. The armies of heaven are the saints of God. And so even now, we participate in God's judgment on the wicked through our prayers, through our imprecations, as Pastor Lusk was uh, talking about last week, through our singing, right? The children's choir was just devastating the enemy uh, earlier in the service. Uh, just, just absolutely terrifying. Um, through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, through our tithes and offerings, through our acts of service, through loving our enemies, through hospitality to strangers, through training our children in godliness, through creating God-honoring culture and art, all of these ways and so many others, through our faithfulness to God, we are participating in the coming of God's kingdom and pushing back uh, the kingdom of darkness. I'm running out of time, so let's look at uh, quickly at the, the closing section in verses 4 through 6. The closing exhortation from Malachi, from the Lord through Malachi, is remember the law, remember the Torah of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The mention of Moses and Elijah here together should be ringing all sorts of, of bells um, because of their relationship, their connection with one another and also uh, with, with Jesus and John the Baptist. Moses was certainly a prophet, but he is known as the lawgiver. He is associated throughout the Bible with the law, with the Torah. And Elijah is the representative prophet of all prophets. He's sort of the, um, the father of all prophets in, in some ways. Um, he and Elisha were actually the only prophets to perform miracles like raising the dead and, and others. So Elijah is often spoken of as the representative prophet. So you have the law and you have the prophets here tied together. And there are a lot of other connections that I don't have time to explore. Uh, but notice the connection between Elijah 
and John the Baptist. We read in Luke chapter 1 explicitly that uh, John Zechariah is promised that his son John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the Gospels, Jesus himself, they all identified John as uh, the Elijah figure that was promised. But think about the, the similarities between Elijah and John. Both wore garments of hair with a leather belt. They both had the same prophetic uh, dress. Both resided and ministered out in the wilderness areas, signifying uh, the removal of God's Word and the exile uh, of God's people. Both Elijah and John acted as troublers of Israel by confronting wicked kings and bloodthirsty queens uh, who then sought to kill them. Um, Both worked for spiritual renewal of God's people apart from the temple system, and they uh, had scathing rebukes of the corrupt religious leaders of their day. So the Lord promises to send Elijah, the messenger uh, that we looked at last time in Malachi 3.1. He is Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist will come before uh, the Lord to prepare the way. And one of the key aspects of his ministry will be to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is not primarily speaking of making uh, biological families um, get along better. Uh, This is not primarily speaking of um, uniting biological uh, families more closely, although that is certainly uh, an implication uh, of, of of this passage. This is primarily the language of restoring God's people to covenant faithfulness. The the problem throughout Malachi is that God's Son, Israel, has become rebellious and unfaithful to their Father, to the Lord. And so it is to the Lord that God's people must be turned. This is again the language of Deuteronomy as we heard um, in our lesson this morning. Fathers, the way covenant faithfulness is brought about ideally is through fathers teaching their children. So there is a heavy emphasis on fathers, on parents impressing God's Word on the hearts of their children. But this was also, since uh, in John's ministry, uh, his preaching primarily focused on um, covenant faithfulness, on the need for the people to return to God their Father. John, uh, in his ministry, said, uh, spoke to the people of Israel and to the religious leaders, saying, "Be bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So against the self-righteous hypocrisy and the empty nominalism of many Jews in Malachi's day and in Jesus' day, John sought to produce children of Abraham who were actually like Abraham. He was seeking to return 
uh, an unfaithful generation to the faith of their forefathers, to the faith uh, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To bring about repentance among the people of God. And so Malachi closes with this dreadful warning. Elijah the prophet is coming. He's going to restore uh, the people to faith in God. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This word, as I mentioned before, is the word used in holy war that meant no spoils could be taken. Like the city of Jericho was put under the ban, under the decree of utter destruction. No spoils could be taken. Everything had to be destroyed. It was all reserved exclusively for God. The irony is that God would pronounce this ban on His own people, on the rebellious Israelites and those who refused to repent. What is conditional is whether or not God will bring this curse upon His people. What is not conditional is that the Lord had promised to come. The Lord is coming. The question though was, what would the Son of Man find? Would He find faith on the earth? Would He find faith in the land when He came to visit His people. God is coming. The question is, what will He find when He comes? Will He find a faithful people ready for His appearing? As we know, uh, sadly, many Jews failed to heed the warnings of John the Baptist. Many failed to repent and receive uh, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to inaugurate. And so when God came in judgment on His people, they were when Jesus showed up on the scene, He found a people not prepared. And so 40 years later, in 70 A.D., Jesus brought His judgment on the city of Jerusalem and on the temple, on the corrupt religious leaders and on the wicked and rebellious people of Israel and used the Romans to completely destroy the temple and punish uh, the wicked and vindicate Jesus, vindicate the apostles, vindicate the church as the new Israel, the faithful people of God. We too are faced with these very similar questions in our own day. The Lord is coming. He has promised to come again at the end uh, of history. Jesus has promised to come again bodily and judge all people to judge the living and the dead. What will He find when He comes? But Jesus comes every Lord's Day. Every day, every Sunday when we gather together as God's people, Jesus comes in judgment, to evaluate us, to evaluate our works. And the question is, what does He find when He comes? Are we ready for the coming of the Lord? Are we, have we feared the Lord? Do we, do we need to fear God's judgment when He comes? Or are we waiting expectantly, praying for God to come 
and judge us and purify us and vindicate us. Remember, judgment begins with God's house. We must be ready for Jesus to come and inspect our lives and evaluate what we have done with the gifts that He has given us. The the, the, uh, warning of Malachi for fathers to train their children is especially relevant uh, to parents and to, to our own fathers and our families. We must be diligent to train our children in the fear of the Lord to turn the hearts of our children to their Heavenly Father, to pass along the, the faith to our children. But the whole point of the church being ready for the coming of the Lord is so that the world will be ready for the coming of the Lord. We, like John, have been commissioned to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. By virtue of our baptisms, we have all been commissioned to announce the good news of God's kingdom. We are called to share, like John, the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. We as the church are called to pray for and work toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the job, the task, of discipling the nations to prepare the world for the return of Christ. The good news is that the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in its wings. But as Jesus reminds us, you, Trinity Presbyterian Church, you, saints of God, you are the light of the world. The light of God's glory Uh, The Son of Righteousness shines through you, through us. And that is how God's glory is primarily manifest to the world. Through the church, through you, and through me. If the Son of Righteousness is to rise, uh, the primary way that the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in its wings on the world, where so many still... Uh, sit in darkness, the darkness of sin and death, is through the church, through the ministry of the Gospel, through faithful, often mundane obedience of God's people, through friends, through family members, through co-workers, classmates, and neighbors who are filled with the light of Christ and seek to reflect that light through lives lived for the glory of God. Amen.